In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, kicking off the new year with the best of a week of stories from across The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, curating today's selection. And coming up, the young economists to watch this decade. The companies counting their employees every step. And a life spent trying to solve the riddle of Israel. Our first cover of 2019 takes stock of Donald Trump's presidency as he enters his second two years. It's been a rocky start, with a government shutdown, seesawing markets and the departure of further cabinet members. But we argued for calm assessment. Mr Trump is so polarising, there's a danger of ignoring his achievements. Shortly before Christmas, he signed a useful, bipartisan criminal justice reform into law. Some of the regulatory changes to schools and companies have been helpful. In foreign affairs, the attempt to change the terms of America's economic relations with China is welcome too. But any orthodox Republican president enjoying the backing of both houses of Congress might have achieved as much or more. During his first two years, as markets surged and the economy roared, Mr Trump felt invulnerable. But his luck may be about to turn. Although the economy is still fairly strong, the sugar high from the tax cut is fading and growth is slowing in China and Europe. Markets, which Mr Trump heralds as a proxy for economic success, are volatile. Republicans were trounced in the House in the midterms. The new Democratic majority will investigate the president's conduct. And at some point, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, will complete his report on links between Russia and the Trump campaign. With less favourable conditions, we warned that the chaos and confusion might increase. He has already been implicated in two felonies and several of his former advisers are in or heading for prison. As his troubles mount, he will become less bound by institutional machinery. If Mr Mueller indicts a member of Mr Trump's family, the President may instruct his Attorney General to end the whole thing and then make egregious use of his pardon powers. What then? So we asked how should Congress and the world prepare for what's coming? Foreign allies should engage and hedge, work with Mr Trump when they can, but have a plan B in case he lets them down. Democrats in control of the House have a fine line to tread. They must hold him to account, but not play into his desire that they serve as props in his permanent campaign. Meanwhile, Republicans find themselves in a familiar dilemma. Speak out and risk losing their seats in a primary. Stay silent and risk losing their party and their consciences. After two chaotic years, it is clear that the Trump show is something to be endured. Perhaps the luck will hold and America and the world will muddle through. But luck is a slender hope on which to build prosperity and peace. One of the notable shifts during Mr Trump's first two years was in the dynamics of global trade. In our Week Ahead podcast, our US economics editor, Sumeya Keynes, declared that 2019 will be the year of the trade deal. There's the renegotiated NAFTA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and a new deal between Japan and the EU, to name just a few. But as she told Jason Palmer, these new deals are no longer just about tariffs. You have rules on trade in data. You have rules on how intellectual property works in the the two countries. Right, and what's wrong with that? 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty great. It sounds pretty good to have all these these trade deals, all this activity going on. And for some folks, it really is. Uh, if you're a politician, then these deals are instruments of diplomacy. The Japan and the EU get to stand up and say that they are preserving the world trading order, and, and that's great for them. The worry is that you end up with this very distorted system where some producers are getting the market access, they're making the sales just because of this lower tariff, not because they're the best producer of the thing. And you're giving these producers this artificial advantage through these trade deals. Around the world, legions of economists are watching these shifting forces and trying to explain them. And every decade, The Economist publishes our own list of the brightest young sparks on the scene. The latest episode of Money Talks went to meet some of them and find out what big questions they're trying to resolve. Melissa Dell teaches at Harvard, and her interests range from poverty to the impact of bombing. But perhaps the most surprising topic of her research is on the economics of a constant factor in all of our lives, the weather. Most of the poor countries in the world are in the tropics, so there's this overwhelmingly strong correlation between a country's average temperature and its level of GDP. Some years may be hotter, some years may be colder, and that's effectively random. And we can look at how GDP and other outcomes vary with that. In countries that are poor, so they have below average global income, in years where it's unusually hot, their GDP is lower. That's true in agriculture, but it's also true in industry. Whereas in wealthier countries, we don't see a strong relationship. Meanwhile, Parag Pathak at MIT has been studying a market that's most unusual because it has no prices, the market for public education. Deciding where to send a child to school will shape their life, for better or worse. So how do you make that decision fair? What's neat about this problem is this is one of the few places in economics where you have an ideal mechanism or ideal way to clear the market. And what English authorities did in 2007 and what happened in Boston where they abandoned first preference first arrangements and adopted what they call in England equal preferences. And so that's a system that doesn't put weight on whether you rank the school first in determining your priority for a school. And that little change, you know, really it's a line of code in a computer algorithm, results in magical properties. So because of that feature, there's no reason to be strategic about how you apply to school. So honesty is the best policy. Meet our other young economists to watch and find out how we chose them in our special episode of Money Talks from Economist Radio. It's available on your podcast app. Many of us now use smartphones, smartwatches and the like to track our fitness and our general health. In this week's paper, our Bartleby columnist explained how a growing number of companies are hoping to benefit from the trend. After all, healthy staff equal happy staff equal productive staff. Or do they? Research published in 2017 showed there had been a 37% leap in the share of British workers who had been offered a wearable device by their employer. Many people, however, will regard these as a spy on their wrists, transmitting information back to the boss. A PwC survey in 2016 found that 38% of British employees did not trust their firms to use the data collected in a way that workers would benefit. 
There's a long tradition of paternalistic employers trying to dictate how workers should live their lives. Titus Salt, a Victorian philanthropist, built a model village for his workers, but banned alcohol from the village, smoking on the pathways, and loud behaviour. Henry Ford, the car maker, had a sociology department that would make unscheduled calls on workers to monitor their lifestyles. Those who failed to make the grade were paid lower wages. But at least you can take a Fitbit off. A few firms, such as Mindshare, a media agency in Sweden, and Three Square Market, a tech firm in Wisconsin, have already moved on to the next stage: implanting a chip under a worker's skin. Employees gain a way to open doors and pay for meals in the canteen, but what do they lose in return? There is nothing wrong with employers offering a bit of fitness coaching, but nobody wants their boss to turn into a stalker. It's one way to get us to stick to this year's New Year resolutions. Back to the paper now, and a particularly showbiz report in our Asia section. I am an ethnic minority.、Uh, I'm just to get、uh, to get married at 14, but no, I'm show educations、uh, from nothing. I'm here. I am. I can do. You can do it.、Thank、That、you. was how Hen Nie introduced herself at the Miss Universe beauty pageant on December the 17th. She's the first Vietnamese contestant to make it to the top five in the competition, and she's the first person from an ethnic minority to be crowned Miss Vietnam. Her story has brought international attention to the position of Vietnam's minorities. Two decades of fast economic growth have brought greater prosperity to most Vietnamese, but have done little to improve opportunities for the country's 53 official ethnic minorities. These groups, who are about 15% of the population, lag behind the majority of Vietnamese, known as Kin, by almost all measures. Fully 45% of them are poor, compared with just 3% of Kin. One barrier is language. Ms. Nhe did not master Vietnamese until she was a teenager. Over a third of minority people never do, limiting access to jobs and education. Discrimination makes things harder still. Many see minorities as backward. But Ms. Nhe's success has prompted some to re-examine their prejudices. Coverage of her by state-controlled media is glowing and free of the usual ethnic stereotyping. When a Hanoi-based journalist wrote racist comments about her on his Facebook page last year, the Ministry of Information and Communications obliged him to make a grovelling public apology. She, meanwhile, has donated her prize money to scholarships and library building in rural areas. That will help others go places from nothing too. And finally, this week's obituary remembered Amos Oz. By many, he was fated as the greatest modern Israeli writer. By others, he was deplored as a traitor to his country. He publicly wrestled with Israel's internal furies throughout his writing career, struggling to realize in his work, as in his life, the brave new Jewish state. As Israel began to grapple with the realities of a military occupation of millions of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, he was one of the first to give warning to his fellow citizens. "We were not born to be a nation of masters," he wrote in a column in Davar, the ruling Socialist Party's newspaper. As the occupation continued, he became a harsh critic of Israel at home, but he remained a staunch defender abroad. 
On his 75th birthday in Tel Aviv, he warned of the presence of Hebrew neo-Nazis in Israel. However, he supported Israel's recent wars in Lebanon and Gaza as necessary acts of defense against the dark shadows of Iran, Syria, and fanatic Islam, and argued Israel's case with a historical comparison he had made in his memoir. Out there, in the world, all the walls were covered with graffiti. Yids go back to Palestine. So we came back to Palestine, and now the world at large shouts at us, Yids, get out of Palestine. Although he never found peace, he held on to hope. We spoke to him in April last year, as Israel celebrated its 70th anniversary. You know, I'm a fairly old man now, and I remember the days when all Arab countries referred to Israel as the Zionist entity and vowed never to recognize it. Forty, fifty years ago, if anybody told me that I'll be traveling to Egypt or to Jordan with Egyptian and Jordanian visas stamped in my Israeli passport, I would say let's not be overly optimistic. So the future may be full of surprises, nice ones and horrifying ones. I just don't know. That's the end of this week's tasting menu, but there's much more where that came from at economist.com. And if you're not yet a subscriber, you can get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12 by visiting economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist.